Hey everybody, welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking. This is part of our, let's say, educational macro interview series. This week, my guest is nonetheless than the guy behind the Twitter handle at Colorado Travis. You might have seen him picking at people, starting fights, talking about the dollar like if it's, it's the thing he loves the most in life. Hi, Travis. How are you doing? Great to be here. That's a hell of an introduction. I think very appropriate. <laughs> Chief Firestarter on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, Chief Firestarter and, uh, you know, the guy defending the dollar to death, basically. But let, we'll yeah. talk about that and more in this, in this macro interview. First, I wanted to pick your brain on geopolitics. It's a topic you're very interested in and there's quite a lot going on. So shall we start from Russia, let's say? Let's start from that part of the world. Yeah. What do you think it's going to end up being there, the base case scenario resolution, if there is any, to the war? And uh, how do you think that affects asset allocation? You know, it's a funny situation over there. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of um, Peter Zion, I think that's how you pronounce his name, um, who's awesome. You know, um, they're, they're, part of what's going on there is they're, like they're essentially fighting over the Mississippi Delta of Europe. Right, this big stretch of arable land that has pretty good waterways over it and can take a bunch of grain to market. And um, historically, Russia likes to roll in there and assert that it's theirs. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, <laughs> they, they have this nasty habit. <laughs> I think they're, they, um, you know, the, the read I think is that they sort of thought they'd go in there and just kind of get away with it. And, um, the, the Ukrainians appear to be fighting what is, you know, it's almost like a war of independence here. Um, not that they weren't already, you know, an independent nation state, but like the, the battle had never really been had yet. And I think this is, um, by some characterization, a battle for to sort of assert their sovereignty. Um, you know, good on them. I'm fully a, a fan of Ukraine. Um, and, and I think that the the thing that that has precipitated here is a something I, you know, I think a lot of people on Twitter saw this sort of commodity, uh, you know, the commodity super cycle. And I, I think what we're seeing is, a, is really more like a supply shock. Um, although those who were positioned for a commodity super cycle are doing really well and, and good on them. Um, my, my sense is that there, there probably is merit um, to this idea of like a longer, commodity super cycle because CapEx has been kind of crappy for a while. But um, I, I still sort of think that at some point here, this rapid rise in the cost of everything leads to a, you know, kind of a big insolvency rinse. Um, so that is, that's the piece I'm still waiting for. I would love to be, um, I would love to be long commodities on a long time frame because I think that's a really interesting trade, but I'm not yet. Um, and, and I think there's going to be better opportunities to get behind that. Once this supply shock kind of percolates through, supply shock plus higher rates, like this is just a really toxic brew for all business, right? Like if you imagine you're running a, you're running just in time supply chains, right? So now you're thinking like, okay, well maybe we want to warehouse more of this stuff. And you're starting to warehouse more, and the, the cost of finance that warehousing is also increasing. And I think we're like we're just starting to see that play out in earnings. It's super painful, and. Um, I would expect some downside from that. What's your read? So, so Travis, 
I think the audience need to understand for a second what you mean with on-time supply and the financing of that yeah. supply. Because I think it's a very interesting topic. I mean, over the last, what, few decades, we used to get components shipped away from Vietnam, Korea, you know, Russia, Ukraine, wherever we, we had our production uh, delocalized, basically. And then we had so-called on-time supply chains. And why do you think that is about to change? Uh, well, that has changed already, but is that about to change for the long term? And by the way, would that have an impact on inflation? That's a good question. I mean, um, I think it's it, it's about to change for the midterm, I would guess, at least, because people are really kind of twitchy right now. I mean, if you're running a business that has had, you know, a, a lot of the a lot of the gain and profitability we've seen over this um, market cycle has been people getting really good at just in time delivery. So like people are running these businesses are running these models where it's like, you know, they can monitor their inventory. They know just when to reorder. Um, there's a little bit of buffer built in there so that they get the, they get the, um, materials they need, um, slightly before they think they're going to need them, but there's not a ton of buffer. And then as soon as the supply chain got shattered, all that thinking shifted and you've got, um, you know, you've got businesses reacting in real time to this where it's like you, you want to make sure you have stuff on the shelves because you want to be the store that has stuff on the shelves or, you know, whether it's components, maybe your Apple or something like you want to be able to move product. Um, and so in order to be able to move product, you have to move away a little bit from that just in time thinking and, and, and or at least retune those models to think that just in time might be storing inventory three, four months in advance because we never know when China's going to, you know, lock down again, since they're trying for this mm -hmm. pure zero COVID policy, it's super challenging. So then when that stuff arrives on our shores, you have to store it somewhere. And so you have to have warehousing for that. You have to like, there's some, there's just sort of an extra line item in everybody's PL around dealing with this stuff. And so a lot of these gains in profitability that we saw um, are, are starting to disappear. You're seeing margin compression, basically like businesses who deal with stuff, are somewhat less profitable. And I think that um, it, some of that explains why these pure soft software businesses have done relatively well re th through all this, because, you know, in the software world, which is the world I come from, we don't have to deal with any of that. Like, I'm not dealing with shipping widgets across the world. Like it sounds terrible. Right. <laughs> and so but, those, uh, Travis, those, I, I mean, I'm wondering, what do you make of this story, which is an interesting one when it comes to, the midterm, because we're used to delocalize our production and, you know, lower yeah. our wage costs as well by basically offshoring production. If you can't rely anymore on China delivering on time uh, supply chain in Taiwan and, you know, wherever you get your stuff now, you're going to have to onboard some of the production inland, I guess, at least whatever you can do that. And the wages are higher. And would that help with uh, reviving some of some inflationary pressures, you think, or you don't buy into the thesis? Um, I don't know where that stuff, you know, like ultimately if we're thinking about bringing that stuff, um, out of China, that's like the, that implies a bunch of CapEx, right? Like yeah. you gotta, you gotta bring that stuff somewhere physically. Um, and it looks like people are a little gun shy about spending CapEx, you know, like they're a little, they're a little gun shy about deploying those funds because it's such an uncertain environment. Um, and, and I would, I would venture a guess here this is totally a guess, but if I were running a, a company, I don't know that 
bringing that back to the U.S. would be my first choice. I think nearshoring makes a little bit more sense, right? Because you have yeah. more favorable labor dynamics and whatever else. Like if you're going to bring a fab out of, um, out of like Asia or wherever, wherever your fab, you know, your big like industrial fab is going on, I think you try to bring that stuff into Mexico. And then the question is, who's footing the bill for that? You know, like is the is the corporation going to buy that, or are they going to partner with the government? who's going to offer some incentives. I think all that stuff still has to shake out. Like I'm not even hearing people talk about that, but the idea of reshoring it purely into the United States, I, I kind of don't see that. Right. I mean, the, even the, the, what do workers want in the United States? You know, they're, we're looking for like high tech jobs. There's this push into high tech manufacturing. We tend to automate that stuff over here. Right. You're talking like, 500 people in a factory in the United States, not, um, not 10,000 people because there's a ton of automation. So I think a lot of that still has to play out. You know, the midterm is basically a, um, I expect a reaction from these businesses to just start like storing more stuff. It's, you know, people, people have this deep recency bias when you're running a, um, you're running a business and your supply chain is increasingly uncertain. The first thing to do is just sort of like, not think about rebuilding your entire supply chain, but just having more stuff on hand. That's kind of the phase I think we're in right now. I don't know yeah. what the knock-on effects of of that will be with regard to inflation. Um, could go either way. Like if we see these big inventory builds, like we're starting to see in some of the retailers, it's not great to have a ton of inventory on hand. I mean, like there's an open question of how much of that stuff is saleable if you lap a season and now there's a whole there's a whole additional yearly cycle of whatever, you know, you're selling like the latest, hottest clothing or whatever that can actually drive deflation. I'm not, I'm not sure how it plays yet. It's super uncertain out there. <laughs> I think that, I think the nuance you, you gave, it's pretty important. It's not like we're going to onshore everything back to the U S right. There are also other bordering countries yeah. with uh, more reliable, let's say supply chains that China would have. So that's a good nuance. The other thing you were mentioning before is on interest rates and borrowing costs getting higher, more expensive for the private sector overall. Um, and you were saying that you're waiting basically for demand to roll over in a more meaningful way, right? Which is the piece of the puzzle you haven't seen happening to the largest extent yet. So can you explain why in the first place higher borrowing costs would lead to lower demand in your macro assessment? And then... Um, why would that ultimately be the, the piece of the puzzle, which would lead you, by the way, to do what when it comes to asset allocation? Yeah, so the so I tend to think of this stuff somewhat from a like a business standpoint, right? So if you've got, you know, you, when you're running a business, you can do all sorts of clever stuff around financing, which is really fun. So I kind of got interested in finance. And one of the things, just to pick an example, is um, AR factoring. So AR is accounts receivables. And if you have a bunch of receivables that are, say, like if you're dealing with a big supplier, sometimes they'll give you these horrible terms like net 90, right? So you invoice them and they have 90 days to pay you. It's horrible. <laughs> you have all this cash. They're basically treating you as a vendor, as a source of financing. Um, and so the way to sort of counter that is to go and factor your receivables and basically borrow against um, borrow against your receivables. And you can do that at a pretty favorable rate, right? Like um, it doesn't cost that much if you have the receivables and you can show that you collect them pretty reliably. But the cost of doing that kind of interim financing has gone up a lot because the front end of the curve has gone up a lot. And so these there are these um, these tools that businesses are used to reaching for to kind of solve short-term cash flow issues. And all of those tools have gotten a little more pricey. 
And so when those tools get pricey, that hits the PL, it affects their profitability, and it makes the business like just a little bit more risk averse, right? Um, and a business that's a little bit more risk averse starts thinking about their business in different ways. We're starting to see whispers of some of this, right? Like these companies are like, yeah, you know what? Maybe we're going to thin out our forward hiring. Maybe we're going to just pause hiring here for a quarter or two. And some of them are actually starting to do riffs if they get hit hard enough, riffs, reduction in force. Um, so I think the, the pressure on business to adapt leads to a sort of conservatism around risk and deploying capital since that capital is more expensive. Um, and so you're, you're seeing businesses have to adapt in real time in an environment where adaptation has gotten more expensive. And I think that that will lead to, on the business side, I think that will lead to um, a, a softening demand for labor. I don't quite know how much yet, you know, it's hard to predict this stuff really, but, but I'm more interested in tracking that dynamic as it evolves. And then the, the second thing is, you know, all of this supply shock stuff, I mean, it just wrecks the consumer. Like, <laughs> I'm just complaining about the price of gas at the pump. I mean, I can bike to work if I've got to, which is great. Um, but, but I think as, as necessities take up a bigger and bigger piece of the consumer pie, you know, and we're starting to see consumers finance that a little bit, right? Like they're spending more on the credit cards. At some point that yeah. runs out of room. Like you just run into your credit card limit and you can't keep up your lifestyle and you got to start making cuts. Um, and so I'm really waiting for that. I'm waiting for those the, to see how those two forces, the force, sort of the pressure on business to adapt in an environment where, where that adaptation is expensive. And then the pressure on the consumer to adapt their habits um, in an environment where maintaining those habits is becoming impossible. I think those things have to play out. I don't think the consumer really has yet. I think, I think right now we're seeing people stretch on credit cards. Yeah, and, and Travis, I mean, the system ultimately is oiled with credit. And so the, the receivable story you were making before is nothing but that, right? I mean, you have some receivables, yeah. you are, you can show that you are reliably able to collect them, and therefore you can get some credit against that, right? And so when yeah. that credit becomes more expensive, then you'll be thinking twice, like, is my business model viable? I mean, you know, I can get credit there, but it's much more expensive. So you'll get less credit, which means, you know, you'll have to shrink your business model and probably stop hiring at least that's the first step and that's how you roll over towards a weaker demand is that a similar story we can make on the housing market I wanted to pick your brain there because i last time i saw a survey yeah. that well i mean analysts expect u.s median house prices to increase by 12 percent this year in 2022 that's amazing and we <laughs> yeah have, i mean we have seen mortgage rates gone up from like 2.9 percent to five and a half percent or so 30-year mortgage rates yeah so what's your take there? I mean, is the housing market just going to keep delivering double digit returns every year or, you know, what happens there? I mean, I'm building a house, so I wouldn't mind it, but I don't expect it. <laughs> I think the, um, I, I think, you know, in a hyper financialized economy, which we are, um, I mean, you think about what a mortgage is, we've basically normalized everybody buying residential real estate on margin, which is just weird. Yeah. Like if your buddy came to you and was like, Hey, I just took out a, $500,000 loan to buy SPX. You'd be like, you're out of your goddamn mind. <laughs> and and we're, we're sort of fine with that as a society around residential real estate. Right. Um, and I, and I think, I think that's still pretty dicey. We're doing a pretty good job managing it, but the, the, the result of that financialization is that people think about housing as rent, like as a practical matter, it's about the monthly payment, right? That's how people think about what they can afford. And so if you've got a, um, 
if, if you've got rates, mortgage rates doubling here, people can afford less house. That's kind of like the net experience of the consumers. They can afford less house. So now let's say that they're in a, let's say that people are in a, in a house already that they bought during the pandemic and they got 3% or whatever. Um, and now rates are at five. I think that there's a really funny dynamic there where as long as that's a fixed rate mortgage and as long as their job's all good, they can keep paying that, but they have very low mobility. So if they want to move, if they want to switch houses, that's pretty difficult to do. You're looking at a big step down in quality of life. And so I think there's this yeah. weird incentive in the housing market where um, people are incentivized to stay put where they are in their houses as a result of this rate spike, which can lead to an exacerbation of, of, um, of the lack of supply. So like I could see this increase in housing prices go up a little bit more just because like there's not a lot of turnover in the market. Um, that's one of the things I think could could potentially buoy housing prices for a little while until a bunch of supply comes online. Uh, online. Now, ultimately, you know, it's the thing about debt. In aggregate, I don't think we can afford these housing prices. And yet, it could run up a little bit longer here because there's not just, just not a lot of supply on the market. I think we're seeing a bunch of, you know, builders are certainly working to correct that problem actively. <laughs> and once that once that reverts, you know, you're going to see you're going to see some tough times. But um, to cause a to cause a, a true problem in housing, you got to see unemployment tick up. Otherwise, people are in these fixed rate mortgages, assuming they are fixed rate mortgages. Most of them are, it looks like. And like they can just keep paying the mortgage. Like there's no actual problem there until you hit unemployment. But Travis, we talked about companies having to slow down hiring plans because of you know financing yeah. conditions getting more prohibitive for them. So if I understand where you're going, you are. it's just a matter of time. I mean, it will really depend from how much does it take for this to fit through um, hiring plans and real economic data, but we're going to get totally. there. Now, we were talking about, um, you You said something with mortgage, which was very interesting. So we have normalized allowing people to buy houses on margin. The margin is basically the money that the bank out of thin air creates and credits on your account. You know, that's basically how it works. Um, so this, this basically creation of new spendable money let's put it like that so you know bank lending mortgages government deficits apart from the housing uh, mortgage let's say the credit creation the rest of it seems to have slowed down a bit like the government last time they sent a check to americans is what march 2021 so yeah at the same time we're having the federal reserve and other central banks trying to make sure that the amount of bank reserves in the system so the, the, let's say that the size of the balance sheet shrinks at the same time um don't you feel that doing the same, you know, doing those two things combined at the same time might actually be pretty tricky? And how do you look no, at totally. asset allocation in an environment like this? Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I think this is an environment not to try to make big plays. <laughs> like, I think that there is a, you know, you, you look out there and it's, there's just not a lot of, um, there's not a lot of certainty in the near term. So there's like some general things that I like to think about when, when, you know, I'm deploying money against something. One, I, I like to be in positions that I feel like I could just hold for a while and, and I'd be fine with that. So like, if I'm not really comfortable holding it for a few years, I try not to be in it. Um, I think it's a good time to have a bunch of cash. You know, cash is just optionality. And so cash is awesome. I still like um, long duration bonds. I get endless shit on that <laughs> for t on Twitter for that. But, you know, I think that that is one of those things that has to play out eventually as we go into a slowdown. 
right? Like I think, you know, bonds are basically like stocks versus bonds. The, the short version of that is when GDP goes up, you want to have stocks because they are harvesting a share of that, right? And you want to pick the stocks that you think will harvest a disproportionate share of the incremental GDP. That's basically mm-hmm. stock investing in a nutshell. If GDP goes down, you want to have bonds. <laughs> um, and those that's like kind of why people like that blend uh, of a portfolio mix because you're kind of prepared for wherever the hell GDP goes. Now, of course, it tends to go up. Um, I think we're going into a situation where, you know, making GDP go up looks increasingly challenging. Like, I, I don't know if you're a lender here and you're trying to build a, a lending book, like, who are you underwriting? Everything is starting to look kind of crappy. You know, I'm not sure what the, I'm not sure the appetite to lend is really there. You know, you can really just, you can just park that in short-term treasuries and get what, a couple points where we're sitting around now, you know, like there's not really a compelling case to invest in a business environment that is increasingly uncertain. So I think that slows down credit creation on the business side, you know, and you couple that with some of the dynamics we were talking about, we're like, it's not even clear. A lot of these businesses want credit. Like it's not even clear that, you know, now is the time to take risks. So I think there's a big cooler on, on credit creation. Um, people who are, who are buying houses right now, there's a lot of cash buyers, which I think is very odd. Um, some of that I, I suspect that we see out here in rural America is like city folk whose companies have told them that they can now work from anywhere are cashing out of their city houses and buying cash houses um, in rural America. So you're seeing this, this sort of migration of people out of cities on the back of remote work. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I, I think the I, as the Fed starts to tighten here and run off the balance sheet, it's just a very... I don't want to be long risk other than weird little esoteric plays. And so when I think about how do I get equity exposure, and for me, I like stuff like seed investments, you know, where I look at a company, it's some founders, there's a, there's this huge asymmetric upside. It's almost like a call option. Like that company mm-hmm. is either going to zero or you're getting 10 X or better on your money. And it's a seven to 10 year play. So that's awesome. Right. Um, mm-hmm. that's an interesting way to get equity exposure when you, when you're looking at in public equities and it's all kind of like, yeah, I don't really know. I think we see a bunch of margin compression out there in the world of the economy and these small little startups who can stay nimble and who, who, you know, the number one skill of a startup is to survive. Like that's your goal for the first four or five years of the company. And so if you're investing in these companies in, in seed rounds and stuff, I mean, you're betting that they're going to survive anyway, whether it's good times or bad. So you just put place some bets on these really scrappy founders and get your equity exposure that way. I like that. Um, and then just waiting for stuff that's cheap. I mean, there's just not a lot of stuff that's cheap. <laughs> but Travis, this marble strategy between uh, having a wealthy, healthy cash allocation and at the same time yeah. marbling that with some large convex upside optionality like seed investments in some good companies, for example, I like that as a style of investment. I want to, for a second, pivot back to your cash allocation, because for cash, I guess that we are meaning dollar cash and not any other form of suggested uh, similar versions or proxy versions to cash. So um, I think owning cash, and you define that as being an optionality, actually an awesome, I'm quoting you now, an awesome uh, way to, to own optionality, uh, is always looked at as um, a 
terrible choice or Dalio would say cash is trash the whole time, right? Or most of the times. Sure. So how do you fight back against that? And what, by the way, why would you want to own dollar cash particularly? Okay, let's do the first one first. Why is cash awesome? So cash is awesome because the way people get mangled in markets is not that they like lose faith in their thesis. So let's take gold bugs, for example, right? Like gold bugs are never going to not believe in gold. <laughs> and I've met, you know, a lot of, a lot of times you, you run into these, there's a couple of gold bugs on Twitter that I, I chat with and I'm like, wow, they have a very disciplined, principled view on gold. I love that. Always going to believe in gold. So let's say, um, you know, you have a bunch of gold, you're re- super long gold. Um, you don't stop believing it. Why do you sell? Well, ultimately you sell because you need cash. And I think when people see this thing about how like retail always sells the bottom, like retail isn't selling the bottom because they stop believing in stocks. Americans are always going to believe in stocks. They're selling because they don't, because they need money. That's why you get that flush at the bottom because the pain gets too intense, too intense. It's like they're trying to protect their family's ability to have a good life. And like, the, you know, they've hit their pain threshold or they actually just actually need money. <laughs> and so what, what having cash allows you to do is to remain long risk when you're losing. That's what's so valuable about it. Like if you have a thesis that says, you know, I should buy and hold SPX or something forever, right? A lot of people have this, these are like passive investors. Well, you need to put yourself in a position where you can afford to buy and hold SPX forever, if that's your goal. And if you get through, get into the chop and it's like, yeah, you know, something goes wrong with your job, right? And, and you don't have, you know, a year or whatever worth of cash buffer, which some people would say is a lot. I think that that's pretty prudent, right? You, you don't want to be forced to sell these equity positions and take a loss, especially when you can't capture the tax gains because you're freaking unemployed, right? Like if you can capture it, if you can loss harvest and put it against the salary, that's a better way to take a loss than if you are unemployed and you have to take a loss because like that's your only source of funds. And so in my mind, like, having a, a big healthy cash buffer it's a prerequisite to any other position you might put on because it's a, the thing that allows you to remain in that position and unless you're some market timing wizard which i'm not i mean i don't really even you know put money against stuff that i that i view to be less than like a year-long play um, then i think cash is it, like it's a requirement and and um if you're going into a more uncertain environment that means there's more uncertainty around how long that thesis could play out so you need a higher cash buffer um, then on the dollar thing, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I posted this paper on Twitter that came out recently. I thought it was so good. It basically went through um, currency, dollar currency dominance as a function of outstanding debt. And I think the thing that people um, miss in the equation of missing this whole discussion around reserve currencies is um, the demand side. People get very focused on supply side because it's easy to count and demand side feels a little more amorphous. But whenever you originate debt, like debt is originated, we sort of splice money out of time, right? So like, yeah, you get this, you get this huge chunk of change, it gets credited and that's money creation, but there's more than that worth of demand created because you got to pay back the principal and service the debt, the interest on the debt. And so if you look at the amount of outstanding debt by currency in the world, the dollar is by far and away the most debt that's hanging out there. There is the most demand for dollars. Now, if you want to have a a thesis about how there will be less demand for dollars in the future, you need to have a thesis about how non-dollar debt will be originated 
commensurate with the shortfall that is currently out there. And I have not seen anything that I did not think was laughable. <laughs> like, like who the hell is going to originate Bitcoin debt, right? Like that shit's down 50%. You know, maybe it could go up 50%. That is a bonkers thing to be in the business of borrowing or lending. It's, it's just not possible. It's too volatile, right? Um, so I think the idea that there, that there are other forms of currency that are, that are superior, maybe they are in some abstract esoteric way. But, but as a practical matter, there's just more demand for the dollar, and it would take us decades to change that. So I don't even <laughs> think of it as a non-serious argument. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as long as the system remains a credit creation system, um, yeah. effectively, in order to be the global reserve currency, you need to be able to export uh, dollars or, well, your currency to other places which are trading uh, denominated in your currency, they're buying currencies that are uh, they're buying commodities that are denominated in your currency, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. To export these dollars away, you basically need to issue debt or do deficits or do you know twin deficits or a combination of both. And at the moment, yeah. the only country that that can reasonably do that in size is the United States. If I look at Europe, Europe will be the second best candidate, right? At the moment, yeah, and, probably. You know, Europe, Europe is not right in a position to do that. It's, it's not in I mean, a position the, you to know, do the that. The truth Europe. about Europe, the stability of Europe is a dollar derivative. Like, the geopolitical landscape is such that, I mean, like, you know, Europe doesn't have an army. So if there's stability in Europe, it's because America pays for it at the moment. Now, that could change. I mean, you know, the Germans are starting to, whatever, think maybe they want another army again. I'm sure Europe's happy about that. That doesn't does work out great. But, uh, no, but, but, but the, you know. The other, the other thing is, the other thing is, okay, the guys, take, take uh, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia exports yeah. oil, right? The oil is denominated in dollars, so they get dollars after they export oil. And what are they going to do with it? They either are able to invest fully in their own economy to make sure their middle, you know, their middle class sort of rises and wages rise, but that's not how it's been working in this exporting, let's say, commodity exporting countries. Otherwise, they're going to have to buy some dollar-denominated assets. Now, if you would do that's the right. same with Euro, what would happen is that they would sell oil denominated in euro and then they will get euros to invest and then they will have to look at the euro investments and they will be looking for a safe place to park their money which means they will be looking at AAA rated euro bonds which are germany and the european union those are the only two issuers and they're very small and the us has this huge pool of deeply liquid market AAA rated with the repo market underneath yeah. it extremely liquid and and that that makes it palatable and at the moment because it's a credit Sorry. system it's impossible to do it otherwise unless you want to change the system completely you want to go to a gold standard you want to go to something else sure. then yeah. we can talk about it but that has some uh, negatives too I and mean, what do you think of uh, moving back to another system which is not credit based is that going to happen i kind of doubt it i think we could move you know there is no going back ever like we can go forward into something else i we probably don't know what that is yet um but there's there's nothing wrong with a credit based system I mean, it has a ton of advantages right like the 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 money supply can ebb and flow as needed you know, money's not as important as people make it out to be. Like balance sheets are important. <laughs> money is just sort of this interim thing. It's an interim state between balance sheets. It's like the grease between balance sheets. And 
um, if there's not enough grease, then the balance sheets all start to break. And, and when you have a system where we don't have control over how much money there is in the system, like breaking a bunch of balance sheets like, causes a bunch of damage and, and, and it's foolish damage. It's like a math disease, right? Like it's this disease that starts at the edge of balance sheets and then everyone gets into a place where they're forced to liquidate. And like, it's not really good for anyone. It's not good for society. Um, it causes all these interruptions in, in productive capacity of an economy. Like it's horrible. Um, and so I think what we, what we've been, what we have is, is something that allows us to sort of push and pull the lever on how much grease there is in the system. And I think that's good. Now, I, I also would agree with the critique that we've been overusing that and that's going to cause us some problems and we're not quite sure how that's going to play out yet. Like at a certain point, the system has enough freaking grease and people are all covered in grease and they start buying crazy monkey pictures. <laughs> you know, like, like, people just go crazy with it. And that, that's also a little weird. Um, you know, I, I, but I don't think that that is a condemnation of a a credit-based system. I think it is a, um, I think it's a sign that the way that we're running ours has some flaws that we need to address. Yeah. And I, and I don't think going back toward hard money addresses any of them, really. And Travis, I always say that credit creation or debt, which is the flip side of credit creation, is not bad per se. It's the use of these funds, newly created funds. I mean, what do we do with those? Is it a productive use of a, a credit creation or is it just, you know, sending uh, stimulus checks to people at home that they will have nothing to do than open a Robinhood account totally. and start buying calls on stuff, right? You know what I mean? It's, yeah. <laughs> you need to talk about what, what is the use of credit. Travis, um, let me say that as the clock is running over, I would like uh, the people here in the audience, if they want to hear more of your macro ramblings, where, where can they find more about you? <laughs> Only on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my uh, I'm, for my day job, I'm actually in in tech, just um, an operator in software. But I love all this finance stuff. I think it's super interesting and sort of the keys to the kingdom to understanding modern history as it unfolds. So I like to ramble on a little bit. I'm at Colorado Travis, and uh, yeah, you know, hit me up in the comments. I'm always open to fight anybody. <laughs> Go follow Travis, and if you do, and comment him, be ready for a fight as well, because he's, 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 he's one of the fire starters <laughs> on Twitter. If you want to follow That's me, you know right. where to find me, at, at MacroAlf or on my newsletter, free newsletter, The Macro Compass. For the rest, if you want to hear more of this conversation, subscribe to the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. And Travis, it's been a pleasure to host you here. Thanks for having me, man.